Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. Well, we've got a very special Thanksgiving week episode for you. One of my all-time favorite food writers has always been Amanda Hesser, specifically for her book, Cooking for Mr. Latte, which was one of the first food books that I've ever read. And if you haven't read it, I would say go out right now and buy a copy because it's one of the most entertaining and useful books about food you can find. It's about her courtship with New Yorker writer Tad Friend. And in today's session, we talk all about that book and her relationship to it. I don't, I do not go back and read that book because I feel like it would pain me. How she got into writing. Also an introvert. So I think there's something about the page, you know, writing it rather than saying it is more comfortable for me. And what it's like cooking with her family on Thanksgiving. My mom is like known for like, She'll, uh, if she has a cooking question, she'll ask my sister, not me. I should also say Amanda Hester, before we get to this, is the author of uh, the New York Times cookbook, and she's the co-founder and CEO of Food 52, which in 2019 was valued at $100 million. So it's a huge honor to have her on this podcast. And without any further ado, here's my lunch therapy session with Amanda Hesser. Uh, well, Amanda, you are... The guest I am most excited. I can't. I hope my other guests aren't listening to this because you are my white white whale. You are the guest <laughs> I've I've always wanted to have on my podcast. So thank you for coming on Lunch Therapy. Oh my gosh, I am so happy to be here. And I just thinking like we've known each other for so many years, we and have. it's really, like it's so nice to still be in touch and to be like. I mean, thanks to social media, like you're able to follow each other. And so like when I saw you were moving back to New York, I was like super psyched. And anyway, I just, it's also just been so cool to like see your career flourish. And and so I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. And and ditto right back at you. I mean, talk about flourish. I mean, it's so funny. I I tell the story of like, when you started Food 52, you were very kind and you had me come over to your house to do an asparagus making video. And I remember thinking, because I was such a, I'm such a fan of your writing. And I remember thinking, what is this crazy website that Amanda is doing? Like, this is so weird. And now it's like this gigantic thing. So it's, it's, it's like, so cool to me that you had this vision. And I guess I'm curious, like, did you know from the very beginning that it would grow to become what it did? Or did you have your doubts, you know, too, I guess? I mean, you always have doubts when you start something, right? I think there's like, that's a healthy part of the experience. It kind of keeps you sharp, right? And on your toes. But sure, I think Meryl and I might, might just for for listeners, I started the company with my friend Meryl Stubbs. And yeah, I mean, we, you know, we did it because we really felt like we wanted to create this place and, and this world that we thought like would be helpful to people and selfishly would be helpful to us too. And, you know, like we wanted a place where we could meet other cooks and get great content and find, discover new products and all the things. And I think it wasn't so much like we had an idea of like, oh, we'll get, you know, this big or, you know, a specific size or a specific reach. I just think we felt like we wanted to we felt this the like this belonged in the world. We mm-hmm. wanted to be the ones who built it. And we felt like it was something that could appeal to a lot of people. And so if we did it right, it would become a big company. What it would look like exactly, we of course didn't really know. We just felt we had a sort of general, we knew the vibe that we wanted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know that sounds so squishy, but it actually is really important. I think in especially when it comes to uh, consumer products and consumer media that is, you know, about people's lives and how, you know, vibe is, you know, what you're, you're trying to kind of like pull together the feeling you want to have. Uh, and so we knew the feeling we wanted to have. Well, it's funny. Cause like, I'm rethinking my question to you. And I think what I was trying to say is like, I thought of you as a writer and I know you as a writer and mm-hmm. as now, like as a writer and being married to a filmmaker, I feel like creative people that I know in general are not great with business. And the idea that you can be a great writer and then also build an amazing business to me almost feels like counterintuitive because it feels like the the brain that goes into writing is sort of like loose and like kind of just like things kind of flow in and out. And then the brain that goes into business is very organized. And so I'm curious about that transition of going from writing about food to like building a business and having to think about business. And was that always there for you? Or was that something that you had to learn? 
<laughs> well, it's really funny because I came, became a writer with having almost no experience in writing. Okay. You know, I was something that I kind of fell into or leapt into and figured, you know, like kind of leapt into the pool and figured out how to swim. You know, I, I studied finance and economics in college Interesting. and I didn't, I really actually like dreaded my English classes growing up. I know I really, I read so few books before I graduated college or high school or college. And I, you know, I just wasn't, I always thought of myself as a math person and, oh. but then I became a writer and I had to figure it out. And I did have some kind of, I must've had some kind of natural storytelling uh, ability that I was able to kind of build on. And I learned as I went much, much in the way that many of us learn to cook, right? You kind mm -hmm. of get in the kitchen. I mean, maybe someone shows you a little bit, but unless you go to cooking school, you kind of have to fumble around and find your way and find your voice, so to speak. And I think that is, in some ways, I think that helped me in writing because I didn't have the uh, limitations or restrictions that sometimes come with knowing a lot about something. Mm -hmm. Like I just kind of wrote from the heart. I really, you know, I, I had to write in my own voice because I didn't know any other way. And so, you know, I think I, you could say that I have approached my whole career in a similar way and that uh -huh. I tend to follow my gut follow my heart and what I'm interested in and then have the, <laughs> you, you could say confidence, but I, I feel like that's too strong a word. Maybe it's more like I have the courage to risk having to figure it out. Well, you're talking and to I, an, an amateur gourmet who uh, has always yeah. felt that way. I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah. funny that I've always felt such a kinship with you. And I think that's probably why it's just like jumping in and just learning as you swim, I guess, like just sort of yeah. forcing yourself and to do it. Yeah, Absolutely. And that's really what Meryl and I both did. You know, I did spend a year before Food 52 trying to start a different company that had nothing to do with food. And it, by the end of the first, the first year, I <laughs> sort of spent all my savings, but I had learned that, oh, this world of like new ideas and making things happen and creating something from scratch really appealed to me. Mm -hmm. And I got, I got the bug and I met a lot of people from like, you know, you know, engine, computer engineers to uh, investors. And I felt like, oh, I started to get a lay of the land of like how you can create a company. And the company that I was trying to start, I also learned was not really a viable idea. It was, it was an interesting, it was a very interesting concept, but not a business to build around. And so <laughs> while that experience in the moment was quite painful to, to discover and go through, it helped me realize that, okay, everyone in this, in even people with MBAs, if you start a business, you're really just having to find your way every day and problem solve. You know, I was talking to Danny Meyer recently, and he said that I think it was his father or his grandfather had said to him, you know, business is problems. Mm -hmm. And it's so true. And it's like, it, you really just, you have to like problem solving. You have to really get energized by that and excited mm -hmm. by that. And I happen to be a person who likes solving problems. And mm -hmm. so in some ways, I think my temperament and sensibility like kind of lent itself to starting a business without any real business experience and finding my way. Well, I think one of the, it feels like the big innovation of Food 52, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is the way that um, products are integrated with the content in a way that's not, it doesn't feel like you're being tricked in any way. It's like, <laughs> these are actually items that the people at Food 52 really like, and yeah. you can buy these items. And that is up, that's next to an article that you might want to read, but it's not, you know, it's commerce. It's art. I guess it's like art and commerce together, mm -hmm. which is interesting based on your background that coming from yeah. writing into business, but it feels like that was the, and maybe is that the innovation of food 52 in a way is the way that you integrated, um, selling, uh, you know, products with actually having articles and things for people to read. I think there were a few things that we were innovating on. I think that was one of them was bringing these worlds together. There was something in kind of the traditional, I guess, consumer products that had kept, mm -hmm. you know, you know, media is a consumer product. And I, I know it sounds like a kind of business school way to talk about it, but it is a consumer experience and thing, you know, a product that you want to 
read and learn from or get inspired by. And so, but that world was always kept quite separate from anything related to transacting and buying an actual physical product. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a crazy innovation. It was more just a, it grew out of our own personal frustration of feeling like if we wanted to have friends, just to take a very simple example, I want to have some friends over in a couple of weeks. I'm going to need to plan my menu, mm-hmm. figure out what I'm like, what serving pieces I need, um, what glassware. Um, I might have some questions I need answered. And you could get all of that stuff, but it meant you had to be quite resourceful and had to go to different, lots of different sources for each. You might have to go to, you know, a, a cookbook or a recipe site for your recipes or maybe multiple. Uh, you might have to go to a, a store like a Williams Sonoma or something, a more kind of boutique shop in your hometown to get, you know, the napkins that you wanted. And, you know, you just, you ended up kind of like having to run all over the place and not all of those places felt like, like they had a coherent and unified, like aesthetic or point of view that you, that you related to. And it just felt like, why can't these things live together and make our lives easier? Mm-hmm. Why don't, and the beauty of the internet is that technology allows you to do so many of the, like to combine things. Um, and so we just felt like technology would allow us to at least test this out. Can we get, can we create this world where you, it's comprehensive and fully supportive as opposed to something that's very focused on one area and then leaves you at sea for the rest on your own. Mm-hmm. And so that was one. And then the other, I think another thing that we were, we felt like was innovative was that we could see this. It was really inspired by the the huge shift in the blog world. Thanks to people like you who started mm-hmm. food blogs, who were not traditional media person, did not people who did not, you know, work at all the sort of name brand media companies, but had really interesting things to say, were super knowledgeable, had great writing voices and decided I'm going to create my, decided they were going to create their own platform. And mm-hmm. you remember there was this explosion of blogs and we just oh, thought yeah. it's super cool. I'm coming from traditional media, you know, we, we'd been in a position of being the broadcasters. We would, you know, broadcast out here is, and we were very, we were the authorities, right? It was, mm-hmm. here's the recipes you should be paying attention to. And there was no conversation. There was no interaction. It was just like, we were just putting it out into the world and kind of assuming that people would like it and, um, and not knowing if they did or not, (laughs) (laughs) unless they wrote a letter to the New York times. I've got lots of letters, but not everyone would do that, obviously. (laughs) And it just felt like, wow, you know, we can see the landscape shifting. And yet we felt like the people who write blogs are the most passionate ones, the ones who are, and who have the sort of right life circumstances that allow them to, you know, write in a, on a regular um, cadence Mm -hmm. to, you know, they know how to um, formulate a a proper recipe. And off, as you know, like food blogs, there's a lot of pressure to like be a great photographer. Oh, I had to learn. I used to use flash pictures on my blog and that was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then like, and you know, we didn't have the iPhone with its filters and all that stuff. And so, you know, we thought, well, okay, if there's this many people who are creating really like well designed, well thought through blogs, think of how many more people that next ring of talented cooks and you know people who have deep knowledge about food who have no platform for it mm-hmm. because they are they're maybe lawyers during the day or they're not good photographers or they're you know like they have other life circumstances where they can't dedicate as much time or they don't have the full you know full suite of ta- of skills that you need to have a successful blog can't can we pull them together and and show the world that there is great content to be had from your neighbors, your people around yeah. you, you know, like people who are not professional media people, but who, um, who have a lot of like incredibly valuable stuff to share. So that was to us that we felt like you could create coming from a place like the New York times where like, you know, this is very high quality content that we were creating every day. Could we create a, a, an equivalent level of content by creating a platform that um, curated Right. community user generated content you can do there was there were user generated content sites 
but we felt like they were a mess. They were like a place where it just felt like a mosh pit of content. There was no curation. There was no sense of like the community coming together and saying like, this recipe is really great. Mm -hmm. And this person is an amazing cook, or, you know, this person is an expert on barbecue. And we, we felt like if you could use technology to create a system that, that encouraged community and participation at lots of different levels and ultimately created a product of like a, you know, a, a database of recipes that was really useful because the best content rose to the top. Yeah. And I, it's so funny because on the internet now, and by the way, we have to get to your lunch because this is your therapy session, by the way. Yeah. You know, now when I Google for like anything like Thanksgiving stuff and cranberry sauce, the things that come up now are so untrustworthy or just so sketchy for me. I mean, like, who are like, what is this? Whereas now if I go to Food 52, uh, I mean, there are just like a small handful of websites I'll go to now that I know will have good recipes if I search on them. And so that trustworthiness is so valuable. Of course, like there, there continue to be great uh, databases of recipes from traditional media, like the New York Times cooking site. I mean, that is not user generated, but it is super high quality and they get, you know, they get great, you know, food creators from all over to contribute as well as their own team. And, you know, Bon Appetit being another one. So, so of course those still exist. And I think those are incredibly trustworthy. We were just trying to kind of add on to those existing models by saying like, those are, those are, that's content by people who are professional, who have like, who've, who create the content as part of their careers. Then there's this pool of people who are incredibly talented, who just didn't have a place to have be celebrated. And we wanted to be that place. Um, and then you also, I'm, I have so many more questions, but I do want to ask you about your lunch, but I was going to say, you've also launched a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't have been launched. Like, by giving them that platform, which is so cool. I mean, I'm thinking of Miss, Mrs. Wheelbarrow, um, uh-huh. and all, all those, you know, personal food 52 personalities that have on, gone on to great careers. Yeah. So that's such a cool thing. Erin McDowell. Yeah. Oh, my, she's amazing. I'm, I actually was on a flight flying somewhere and, and it must be food. 52. Yeah. Must, it must be on Delta or something. And I, I watched yeah, I think it's on Delta. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I watched all of her pie making tutorials <laughs> and it was like the best flight ever. Okay. Amanda, um, this is going to be a therapy session based on what you had for lunch today. So tell us oh. what did you have for lunch? Okay. I have, can I start with the fact that I actually don't like lunch generally? That's fine. Yes. There's no I judgment wanna, here. So this is part of the therapy. I want to confess. <laughs> I'm not a big lunch person. I used to be a not very big breakfast person and a big and a more of a lunch person, but I've grown into a, like, I like to have breakfast and I tend to be sort of snacky at lunch. And then mm-hmm. I like to have a, a dinner with dessert. And so today I feel like all I've eaten is like, is starch today. I, I had for breakfast, I had, when I met someone for breakfast at the Crosby hotel. So I had uh, eggs and this really delicious um, hash brown and toast. And then I went to the office and then I had pastries and as some kind of pistachio lemon bread. And yeah. then I came home and I was still miraculously still hungry. I think because I did Barry's boot camp yesterday oh. and I had a, uh, like a Persian rice dish that had barberries and, almonds and um, uh, kefir lime leaves and bay leaves and parsley and some other and lemon lemon peel in it it was and saffron it was delicious and I had that with them on the side a uh, and I didn't make this by the way I just I was um, and then I had on the side um, like a cucumber tomato onion kind of salady thing it was delicious I love that you say you don't like lunch and then your lunch sounds better than like 99% of the people's lunches that, that are <laughs> listening to this. No, that sounded amazing. Wait, how did you come upon this salad? I mean, or this um, rice dish? Someone, did... someone uh, yes, sorry. Someone uh, who I know made it and, um, and it was delicious. And okay. so that to me is, but actually, you know, when I'm at the, when I, when I go to the office, my, my, my dream lunch, not my dream lunch, but the lunch I often actually have, is I really like to have salad and French fries. Oh, 
Interesting. Okay. So it's like a little, a little virtue. Um, and then a little not, I mean, this is bad because food shouldn't, we shouldn't attach judgment to food, but it sounds like a little naughty, a little nice, a little, you know, I like something like clean and then something that's kind of like richer and like yeah. crunchier and, um, yeah, sort of more savory. So I, yeah, uh, that's, that was my lunch today. I hope that that passes muster <laughs> podcast. No, it's great. It's I mean the idea here is now we kind of use that as a prompt to kind of oh, learn more oh, wait, about I you. Forgot something. Sorry. Uh, and then yes. I had San Pellegrino, which I'm kind of addicted to, and then I also had dried mangoes, which I love. This is a huge lunch. I mean, you you're someone who doesn't <laughs> like lunch. You've had a lot of things at lunch and for breakfast. <laughs> I guess, yeah. yeah. Well, you know what's really interesting is like as your lunch therapist, I've noticed, um, and this speaks to your abilities as a writer and probably a business person, this real attention to detail, which was like really telling me specifically like what was in the Persian rice salad and then what, and I, I, I'm curious, like, have you always been um, so detail oriented like your whole life? Like where were you, or maybe another way to put it is like a perfectionist? I'm a Virgo. Okay. That kind of explains most of it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't I know like what that means. <laughs> clean hands. I like to have clean hands. I like to have, I like to write lists. Uh, yes. I, I'm, I'm, I, I always, and of course, like, <clears throat> like all perfectionists, I'm kind of a failed perfectionist because there is no such thing as perfect. And so I tend to be very detail oriented in certain areas and then mm -hmm. other areas, not at all. And so uh, it's, it's, it's very inconsistent. <laughs> no, that's really interesting. I mean, it's so funny because I'm thinking a lot about what you said about writing and how you were have a math brain and that you but you sort of got into the world of writing. But it's not like you just got into the world of writing and were writing like a live journal. I mean, you got into the world of writing and you were writing for the premier publication, like basically the place everyone wanted to write for. So, I mean, did you mathematically like study like what makes for good writing and like say, you know, I must ha have X, Y, Z, and I must have a strong lead. And I must, you know, like, because was, was there any, like, no, she's shaking her head. No, no, her. <laughs> no I didn't. I, I wish I could say, or maybe I don't wish I could say, I really, I was winging it. And mm -hmm. I did, I did when I sort of my, my last year of college, when I started getting really interested in food. And then when I moved to Europe to study, I started reading writers like, MFK Fisher. I mm -hmm. started reading, you know, the Times food section. I started reading um just, you know, kind of some of the classic food writers and sure. Waverly Root. And I and I worked for a woman named um Ann Willen who ran oh, yeah. I, I have her book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean she's written actually like 30 books. And actually oh. I helped and I what one of the things that got me interested in writing was working for her and helping her out with one of her cookbooks. And but we had an incredible uh, cookbook library, like mm. something, several thousand cookbooks and many of them very old. And so I really, I got exposed to this really broad array of food writing and I found it to be this kind of exciting world that had opened up to me. So I think it was more that I was consuming it, not thinking of it as like, oh, I want to emulate this writing or it was more just, I was really enjoying reading and mm -hmm. for the first time and found myself. Um, and I think I got, found myself drawn to writers like MFK Fisher who had strong, had a strong voice and a strong point of view and were not afraid to share it. And that was one of the things I always loved about Molly O'Neill who wrote mm -hmm. for the times on that time. And so I, I think that just probably, you know, through osmosis, you know, kind of influenced me uh, when I started writing on my own. And I've well, always been kind of like an opinionated person. So I, yeah. I think, and I, but I'm also an introvert. So I think there's something about the page, you know, writing it rather than saying it is more comfortable for me. Mm -hmm. And if you're somebody who likes to work on details, it's like, you can sit there with a sentence and rework it and rework it in a way that you can't when you're being verbal. So I, I totally, I relate to that too, but mm -hmm. I was going to bring up, um, my favorite, my favorite food book of all time, which is cooking for Mr. Latte, which I just featured on my new, uh, I started this video series I on my Instagram. Saw. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. I actually tried to repost it and it, my phone wouldn't repost it. 
Uh, anyway, so I'm so sorry. But well, it's I funny. I you a note to say thank you because it was so nice. Well, it's so funny because I made the video. Part of what I was saying in the video is that what I love so much about this book, which is for those who are listening, if you haven't read Cooking for Mr. Latte, you must. But what I love so much about it is that you're not afraid to make yourself unlikable in some parts of it. Like you're, <laughs> and I and I just I played it for Craig, and he's like, "That's kind of insulting." And I was like, "He's like, are you sure you're not insulting Amanda Hesser?" I was like, "No, I think she knows what she's doing." Because like, there's chapters in here like where like you go to Italy with your grandmother and she's not getting it. Like she's not into the food or like the way you eat there. And then you, you get frustrated, but I feel like the way you present yourself, it's sort of like, you're aware that you're, I, I, I how, would, how would I phrase this? I, I feel like you're conscious of the dynamics at play and you being sort of quote unquote, like a food snob or like somebody who's fixated yes. on food. Whereas your grandmother is somebody who came from the depression. Who's not, doesn't want to eat three courses. And so, when I say like unlikable, I guess what I mean is like, you don't necessarily have to make yourself like the hero of the story. It's sort of like, you can be the butt of the joke in a way. Right. Um, I mean, my, 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 Mr. Latte, my, who's my now husband was the yeah. hero. And so, yes, I mean, I did as a writer understand that, well, there were a couple of things at play, but I, which I will explain, but one was definitely that I understood when I started this, that ultimately he was the hero and that I, you know, like that, even though I came, I came at this as kind of like the food expert and he seemed like he was not clued into food, like that we were going to learn from each other mm -hmm. and, you know, that some of his, what seemed like kind of klutzy habits or cluelessness about food was actually endearing. And, mm -hmm. and, um, and that in fact, you know, foodies can be really overbearing and kind of um, <laughs> dull, frankly. And so I was probably, you know, I was, I think, knowingly as a writer, kind of exaggerating right. things that were part of me, but probably playing them up, you know, to a, a higher degree in order to show the contrast, um, which is, I think is something, you know, you do as a writer um, when you're shaping character. And, mm -hmm. but I also do think that it's funny because, I I do think when I moved to New York, it took me like five years to to really like New York. I, I really didn't like it very much. Where did I, you, you know, move from? I moved from, well, I was living in France. I moved back home to my mom's house in Pennsylvania in the woods, mm -hmm. wrote my book. And then I briefly lived in LA like for literally two months and then and then like moved to New York for this job. And I knew no one. I had one friend in New York and she worked as a night nurse in the, you know, and at New York hospital. So we never, wow. we were on opposite schedules and never saw each other. I didn't know anyone. And I had this new job where I was like suddenly a journalist at the New York times and having to figure out what I was doing. So, I was, and I wanted to do well. So I was working around the clock and then, you know, and just New York is not an easy city to you all the time, even with, even when you have a good job, you know, it's just, it's mm -hmm. like, it can be brutal. And I was feeling it. And so I think it, and the New York times is a competitive place. And I think it, I think, and also like, there were other things in my life that I was like, I was, uh, I was not in a happy place necessarily. And so I do think actually it was a, it was a period in my life where I was a little harder edged. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think that came out in my writing and mm -hmm. where I was, I wasn't so afraid to be opinionated, but I think, you know, I look, Sure. I don't know if you feel this way when you look back at your writing, but sometimes I look back and I feel like, <laughs> you know, I wish I had toned it down or just oh had my God. half the things I wrote on my blog. I wish I'd toned down. Yeah, for yeah. sure. A hundred percent. Yeah. We're just, have, you know, and this is just something that it takes years of living to, but like, I wish I had lived more and I would have seen things differently. But then of course, that's sort of the beauty of youthful hubris is like, you don't know. And um, and so you're exposing yourself when you're writing, yes. when you're writing personally at that age. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I think there were some great things that came out of that. And also like, of course I, you know, I don't, I do not go back and read that book because I feel like it would pain me. Mm. Um, That's but yeah, funny. so I just think it, it's, it's just funny because I look back when I, I totally understood what you were saying when you were explaining this on Instagram that I, <laughs> I presented myself as unlikable, but I also kind of like laughed because like in high school, I, I was voted most popular, like, and so it was, <laughs> I, like That's created funny. a persona that was actually quite unlikable. Um, but it, <laughs> but not, it's not that it's not that different from like kind of what happens on Instagram today. Like, we all right. have our kind of social media facade, or you right. know, and 
even if you try not to do that, there's still an element of it that you're kind of presenting a version of yourself, not your full self. And I think that's exactly what was happening here. But there are some rants in your book that I still like live by, including your rant about sharing plates at restaurants, which is so funny because that trend, because I think you go to craft in the book and it's like everyone's sharing their meal and you didn't you basically say you don't want someone like getting sausage flavor on your fish or whatever, you know, and I feel like every restaurant now it's like, you know, let me explain how we do things here. You know, we share, you know, everything's to share oh, yeah. and that you like, like your own individual entree, which I think is the next trend. I feel like everyone wants to go back to that. Like we all want our own entrees and our own. Yes. Uh, so I feel like you were ahead of the curve with that. Well, I, I will not, I will take no credit because I think it came from, I had a lunch with Julia Child of all people wow. at Oceana in New York and someone at the table suggested switching plates and she was like, nope, <laughs> we will really? not. She was very opposed to it. And I loved her for that because yeah, it just, I think, well, I think also even Yes, you're getting to taste more of the chef's food, but ultimately you're not really fully ex like getting to fully experience what the chef has created if you're right. like passing it along. And so, yes, I'm I do. Yes, there are. Of course, there are certain cuisines where you do it. Their sharing is kind of the norm. But I also I do. I don't know. I find that more and more when we go out with friends, people aren't passing, which I think is a, a good thing. <laughs> I have a friend who she and her husband do halvesies every meal. Like every time we go oh. out, they, they each negotiate who's <laughs> going to get which entree and they cut it in half and then they each do half and they switch, which is kind of cute. Um, well, I mean, not to belabor this one subject, but I'm curious about the aspect of your this book, but also your other writing that was, you know, um, autobiographical and that wrote about people in your life and yeah. what, the, what the consequences of that were for you. And if that's something that eventually like you shifted away from, um, because I feel like the writing that you do now for Food 52 and that, like the newsletter and stuff is, is very like fun to read. But it's like, you're not necessarily like going into like deep personal relationship stuff um, in the same, quite the same way. So I'm curious what that, what that was like for you to write a book about your family and all of that. And if that was something that you would yeah. do again I I would I might do that again if I felt like there was something interesting to say it's a danger when you write about of course when you're writing about people you know but even when you're I, I remember actually I wrote a story in the New York Times magazine about this woman in San Francisco who would cook or excuse me bake thousands and thousands of cookies every, every holiday she she um for she celebrated Christmas and she would send these boxes of cookies to like hundreds of people and they were like mm. so many different kinds it was like this hugely ambitious project that would take her months and I thought it was like the coolest thing I thought you know I I felt like I wrote with the reverence that I felt toward her and I, but I, you know, she was also a very particular person speaking about, she was very detail oriented mm -hmm. and kind of had everything just so. And I, I felt like it was important to kind of establish her character in this piece. Mm -hmm. And I learned later many, you know, year, actually, I think it was even like years later, just through her son that I had deeply offended her. Really? Yes. And she never, I never heard from her. And after that piece, and I, I really thought I wrote the piece to celebrate her because I thought it was just this miraculous thing that she had pulled off year after year and her whole family was involved. But, you know, it's, you know, it's risky when you write about people and, mm -hmm. and maybe people perceive themselves in a certain way and you're, you know, nothing is the actual absolute truth, right? Mm -hmm. Because all individuals perception. I, uh, but yeah, sure. I think there were a couple of people in the writing of cooking for Mr. Latte, you know, it was originally this column called Food Diary in the New York Times Magazine and before it became the book. And there were a couple of columns where I heard from people who were not happy. And I, I kind of learned along the way. And right. that, that actually helped me I think, when it came to writing, because the book has a lot more chapters in it than, than were ever in Food Diary. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I became, I think you want to be mindful without to like watering down what you have to say right mm -hmm. i think it's a, it's a fine line but i think you know um especially with people yeah it's like life is long i i think that i would i don't think that i like terribly offended anyone like right. but I, I probably annoyed some people and uh 
I, it's a good question. I mean, I really haven't thought like, would I do it differently? I don't know. I, I, I think I am a different kind of writer. I think, you know, just as you become a different kind of cook over the years, you, yeah. I've become a writer. And it's not that I've avoided writing personally. It's more just the nature of the kinds of writing in the, in the um, kind of platforms that I'm writing in don't right. kind of welcome personal. I mean, I wrote a, I did write a series that uh, maybe three people read Um <laughs> But meant a lot to me actually over like a couple of years ago on Food 52 about, I think, uh, what did we call it? It was like Space Invaders or something like that. We had a, it was a series about all the different infestations that we've had in our house because, mm. you know, we were covering a broader spectrum of food. And, I'm sorry, excuse me, of home as well as food. And I felt like something that people never write about is like these things, like, you know, clothing moths. And, you know, mm. we, had, we had a squirrel issue. We <laughs> After Hurricane Sandy, we had a rat issue. We've had we've had everything. Oh no! In the apartment that I that I'm right in in here, and um, and and they were dark. We had bed bugs. I mean, we've had very dark periods of of dealing with these things and how they kind of affected our lives. And so I wrote a series about that, which actually was quite personal because um, it wasn't really just about like the infestation and how to get rid of it. Even though I I mean I tried to write it in a kind of light and humorous way but it was these were <laughs> it was it was definitely uh ex extremely personal i'm gonna check that out I, I don't know how i missed that but i'm curious now um we mentioned before we started that your kids are going to college next year and i'm yeah. curious like are either of them interested in writing or cooking the way that you and tad are that remains to be seen our daughter addison has been writing poetry since she was very young. And so she still does that. Uh, and she does some songwriting, but she hasn't, you know, no, none of, neither of them has really gotten into any longer form. Mm -hmm. And, but, you know, going through the college application experience, there's, you know, a lot of emphasis, obviously, on college essays. And so our son was just saying the other day, actually, that that having gone through this, it's gotten him to the point where he now really can feels like he can just sit down and write something as opposed to feeling like it's like dreaded assignment of like the right 600 words on a topic. Now he just feels, he understands how to like really just from the repetition of doing it, which as all professional writers know, like that is part of it is just the discipline of like mm -hmm. sitting down and just writing and so that's been that was sort of a, the first time where I thought like oh like I don't think he'll become a writer but I thought oh I think maybe he's starting to have an appreciation for it and a comfort with it mm -hmm. that makes me happy because I think it's such a, uh, an important way of expressing yourself well it's funny because I had Dwight Garner the you know the book critic uh, who I think you just did an event with um, yes I did uh-huh uh, but I was talking about reading his wife's work and just like how loaded that is to be like the book critic for the New York Times giving you feedback on your <laughs> novel or whatever. But I could also imagine for your kids, like having such an incredibly talented parents, it must be intimidating for them to show you guys like what they've written or does that well, not, not occur to them? <laughs> well, there's definitely already a hierarchy has been established because uh, my husband, for anyone's listening, is he's a staff writer at The New Yorker and has been there for over almost, I guess, 25 years now. Wow. And he writes really long form pieces. He writes sort of, you know, eight to 12,000 word pieces and they're deeply reported. And uh, and he's a wonderful writer. I, and, uh, I, you know, I obviously have done a lot of writing in my whole career, but when it came to writing college essays, they went to dad. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> like, we want dad, dad's, you know, stamp of approval. I, are there, I read are there essays, 8,000 words? Or... <laughs> no, it's, in, I thought the college essays would be much longer, but they're actually the, the common app is like 600 words, which, wow. you know, that's hard. It's hard to write. In fact, when I was at the New York times, they used, they had, they felt like word counts were getting too high. And so they cr created something called the brevity award. And every month they would award somebody um, for the best story done in the shortest amount of uh, shortest number of words. 
And so I, I think in a way it's maybe it is a really good test. Like, can you say something really meaningful in 600 words? And then the supplemental apps are, are supplemental um, essays are only t- like 250 words. Really? That's like a tweet. That's tweet. You just have to do a tweet to get into college. Uh, well, I'm curious <laughs> like, to, to pivot for a second back to the business side of things. I'm just curious, like, you know, with your insight all those years ago when you started Food 52 about like where things were headed, now we're in 2023. And I'm just curious, like, how do you see the landscape now of food media? And, you know, for me, from my perspective, it really feels like it's shifting into video, like TikTok reels, like that kind of stuff. But on a bigger, bigger, I mean, are you getting ready to do like virtual reality Food 52? Like, like what, where, where do you see things headed? That's, well, it's funny because I was thinking like where, if, if you feel like it's all moving into video, where do, what do you think is next after that? Because to me, that's always the question, right? Like right. we saw video coming and I don't, I, I, I don't have a, I, I don't have a crisp answer to it, I'm afraid. And I, I do think, I, I'm fascinated by the Substack phenomenon that mm-hmm. is a, such a strong juxtaposition, obviously at a much smaller scale, to something like TikTok. Mm-hmm. There's something about, I mean, the beauty of food, right? Is that expressing it in all these different formats, it's sort of pleasing in every one. It can mm-hmm. be, right? It can be satisfying, it can be inspiring, you can learn, you know. But I do think this number, like, you know, especially there's like a lot of really like kind of big influencers who have their own sub stacks. Oh, yeah. And if you say they're doing that to monetize, of course, yes, they probably are. But I think there's also, there's just something about a longer form expression in food that's like important mm-hmm. to creators. And so while I think video is clearly going to be the dominant format that people are creating in, and it's, it's more, you could, you could say it's probably like more inclusive to like a broader group of people to create because it's like, you know, it's short, it's fast. You don't have to like do it to, you know, you don't have to sit down and write a long, you know, Substack or whatever with, with images or what have you. But uh, I do think it's interesting though, that even given the huge magnetic pull toward Instagram and TikTok short form video, there's this sprouting up of, of kind of longer form uh, uh, substack. But I also think, um, I mean, the cookbook industry is such an interesting Mm. barometer of, you know, it it continues to be a really important uh, validation creators to get published Mm -hmm. and an important way of expressing your, I'm gonna use the word vibe again. You're you're <laughs> like cooking vibe, your aesthetic, your point of view, your everything on a page in a way that you can't do in a short form video or even a long form YouTube video. And so um I think it's uh we're we happen to be in an industry where all of these formats kind of are continue to be relevant. Um I think it's but I, I, I guess I always believe that there's going to be another something. There's something. There's something will follow TikTok. Like I, you know, since we started Food Fifty Two, when we started Food Fifty Two, Facebook existed. Instagram did not. Or sorry, Facebook existed. Twitter was basically had, had just been born. You know, mm-hmm. two years earlier. And so we actually did a lot of our social media on Twitter in the first couple of years, and then Instagram, and then Instagram. Like it kind of was like a slow ramp up, and then it exploded, mm-hmm. and. Then there was Snapchat. And I remember everyone was saying, you've got to get on Snapchat. And I just <laughs> felt like this is not, this doesn't feel like like the right thing for us. And also because we, you have to decide when you're running a company, like where are you going to put your resources? Right. And you can't see every platform. And in fact, we did, but to that same point, so we, we ignored Snapchat, which I think was the right call at the time, but we were also ignoring Facebook. Hmm. And I think that was the wrong call. So what we have found is actually we have incredible, we went back to Facebook after a while, after we kind of got our sea legs on Instagram, we went back to Facebook because we felt like we saw there's just incredible engagement on Facebook. It is obviously a different demographic age-wise generally, but it's a really, it's a really excited 
um, and engaged group. And so it's important for a company like ours. And now I think we're trying to find, like we've, we've grown a lot on TikTok, but we're sort of trying to find our way. But I think there will shortly be another. I just don't know what it's going to look like. I, I don't believe it's going to be an AI or VR or whatever, like necessarily, <laughs> yeah. but it might be some combo. And um, I think, it'll, you know, like it's always, I think it's all of these evolutions are really interesting. They only... Uh, cause my me stress when I think about how do we how do we keep up from a company perspective on like in in for serving them all well because you have to kind of pick your bets. It's funny AI. I mean, it's so insidious now that when literally when I started this Zoom call with you, it said, "Would you like an AI summary of your conversation when this is over?" And I was like, "That is so creepy." Did you, say, did you hit yes? No, I should have done it. I, it'd, be I, I was... it'd be interesting to see what what it what it does. <laughs> yeah. Well, next time I'll do it. Um, well, that's interesting. I mean, it's I I kind of get a sense that things are fracturing in a way in that like people are finding their own niche audiences, and like I feel with my Substack that I'm writing for my own little bubble, like the people who yeah. like amateur gourmet, and then people who are reading, you know, um, Alicia Kennedy's Substack are people who like Alicia Kennedy. And it's like, we're all kind of like splitting off mm -hmm. into little sectors. Whereas I feel like something like Food 52 is still about community. It's about like this large umbrella that everyone's welcome to be a part of. So it is kind of this, these two systems that, that are going on at the same time, where it's like micro content uh, for, you know, little niche communities and then there's like still the larger platforms that serve everybody well, so it's kind of a re replay of the blog thing yeah, right totally you know? um and maybe Substack is just a format that more people can kind of keep up more creators can keep up with mm -hmm. um and and gives them more ownership like literal ownership right if they're if they charge i don't i think it's like <laughs> like everything feels terrible in media right now mm. Uh, in terms of the industry, but I also feel like these these kind of churning moments are also when new I great new ideas get formed. So I'm always kind of feeling like there's a I feel optimism, like a, a layer of optimism, you know that that um, I kind of it's like my life raft. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, speaking of media and different forms, I meant to ask you because I have cooking for Mr. Latte in front of me. Did you ever attempt to turn this into a TV show like Sex in the City? So CBS did. Uh, they <laughs> so they bought rights to a pilot and I, you know, whatever advised on the consulted on the on the pilot script. There was a really great um writer. It got like super dumbed down and it was like to a painful point. <laughs> And they made the pilot. With who? Who played you? Oh, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting. Um, I'm dying to know. But it was, it was. I never saw it. They wouldn't, so it never was made. And they just have a rule that they don't share the pilots. I'm sure someday it'll like emerge oh. on like the dark web. <laughs> <laughs> I love or, that. or not. Um, yeah. But I, I can't, I still, it like blows my mind that I have not been allowed to see it. But it probably is saving me like from pain because, you know, they, for whatever legal reasons, they just felt like they couldn't base anyone. They had to make, they had to change everybody's identities. But in doing so, you kind of lost the essence of the story. Was so, it still called whatever. Cooking for Mr. Latte? Like, was that the name of the show? Oh, they changed his name to Professor Frappuccino. And I'm not kidding you. Professor Cappuccino. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh my God. But I have to like, we have to find this. This this could be like, this could be the future of media. Ooh, yeah, we... maybe you know how to find these things. You know how to figure no, out. I, I, th I thought that Amazon was going to take like pilots that never got aired and put them on Amazon, but I don't think that ever happened. So um, that would be amazing. Wow. I'm so glad I asked. Squash that idea. Anyway, but so, it was a fun, like, little, it was a fun little taste of Hollywood. Yes. Did you go to the taping? Oh, no, you didn't see it. You didn't see no, it. But you, see you, read, you read the pilot, though. Yeah. 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 I read various versions and had input. And uh, no, and I got paid. So that was awesome. I was like, it was much better than writing rates. Well, not to keep pushing this, but what was the plot of the pilot episode of Mr. of Professor Cappuccino? You know, I don't even remember. I'm so <laughs> sorry. I would love to tell you, but it, it, I've, I've, I've like, I've erased, I've sort of like, you know, like cording to that off to like um tv land failure 
Oh my god, your kids would have gotten such a kick out of it though if there was like a sitcom of like their parents that they could have watched. I mean, that that's wild because how many people get because usually if it's like a sitcom happens, it's like a stand-up comedian or like somebody adapts yeah. it themselves. But to have like your own life like adapted into a sitcom just sounds wild to me. So that would be um, wacky. Yeah. Um I meant to so ask. So how are you, your I mean are oh, you still doing are you still doing work for are you still working in TV? No, I pivoted. You know, TV is uh it's a tough business to you have to really it's funny ironically you have to have the stomach for it um and as a food writer i don't think i did you have to be willing to get knocked down dust yourself back off get back up and do it over and over and over again and i had a lot of really exciting projects that like i wrote a screenplay that was optioned by netflix that stephen fry was attached to star in um, I did like um, a pilot, the pilot that went out, but all these things like never materialized much like your sitcom. And so it's like just that frustration of working on things that nobody was seeing. And even though you can make money yeah. doing that, like you could literally live in LA and have a house and nobody will ever see your work, but you can just keep selling pilots and keep like, I just found that so joyless and pointless that I, I wanted to go back to food writing. So I, you know, got basically just pivoted back. I'm actually working on a novel right now about the food world. Um, so I'm working Ooh. with a new, new literary agent. Um, I could tell you it's about a ghostwriter who's ghostwriting a celebrity's cookbook. So it's sort of like a little bit oh of my gosh. That, Fantastic. That culture. So I, you know, I feel like I'm able to use the, the storytelling skills that I learned from TV writing um, and then apply them to my knowledge of the food world and cooking. So I'm hoping I can like find like my own little niche of being a food novelist, although there's other people who do that too now. Um, so that's what I'm working on. <laughs> that's <laughs> um, so great. Thanks. I was going to ask you, um, I know that you guys just moved to new headquarters and can you tell us a little yes. bit about where you're at now and what, what that's like? Sure. Yeah. So we were in, you know, we've moved, we've had different offices over the years and the office that we had in Chelsea in Manhattan, just we outgrew and, during uh, COVID and we we needed a space where we felt like that, that really allowed us to focus on like what I think of as like the three core things that we do, which is like creating, gathering and entertaining. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we could see that post COVID people weren't going to necessarily need an office in a conventional way or, right. or, or in the fully conventional way that it had been. It, it would, it's not that people wouldn't want to come to an office to work, but they would have a different cadence and, and such. And so we wanted to create a space that really was like a place where our team could gather, mm -hmm. where our creative team had like all the, like the right light, the kitchens, the studios to really do their thing and create the great content that they do and the, um, you know, great photography. And then that we could entertain and do events. Cause one of the, the constraints we had in our old office was that we liked, we really, you know, as a community driven company that's focused, you know, on food gathering together and, and, and breaking bread together is a, is a part of who we are. Yeah. And while we, we made it work in our old space, we often like, if we had an event, we'd have to tell everyone to like leave the office by four so that we could like, transform it into an event space. And that's not obviously uh, conducive to a happy team. So we designed, so we, we, we look all over the city and, in, you know, in New York city, a lot of buildings don't want kitchens built because there's ventilation issues, there's fire safety. And we found it almost impossible in Manhattan to find a space that um, could work. But then there was this uh, new building in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And the Brooklyn Navy Yard, which most people don't know where it is, it's, it's essentially like there's the Brooklyn Bridge, there's the Manhattan Bridge. And the Manhattan Bridge is, you know, if you just go a little bit further north in Brooklyn, that's the Brooklyn Navy Yard. It's right on the water, basically wedged between downtown Brooklyn or, or Dumbo and Williamsburg. And okay. it's a um, it's a working shipyard, hmm, <laughs> but it crazy. is a big. So it's 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 government owned and it's it's um, it has lots of warehouse spaces and the shipyard is still functioning, but it's much smaller at a much smaller scale than it used to be. So the, what they did very cleverly years ago was realize there's this whole creative culture in New York city and with people who need spaces to work and Manhattan rent don't work for them. So they turned all these warehouses into like, photo, you know, there's lots of photographers, there's, there's 
ceramicists, there's jewelry makers, there's uh, distilleries, there's all sorts of creative businesses in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And they have, because it's um, because it's not commercial real estate, they are able to offer rents that are um, are better for people like the basically the creative class. And so we there was this new building going up right on the water, and they were looking for an, essentially an anchor tenant who was a creative company. We fit we fit that description, and they helped us you know build out this kind of amazing space that looks out over Manhattan. Wow! And um, the ferry drives right up to the building, and we can actually from our building, if you look out the window, we're right next to the dry docks. So the ships, you know, every week there's like new boats that come in. They like they have a lock system, so they like empty out the boats come in, then they empty out the water, they fix the boats, and then they fill it back up and they go out. And it's really cool. It's like a Richard <laughs> Scurry. Uh, illustration of you know, <laughs> all sorts of things happening cranes and uh and um uh equipment and yeah it's 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 nice to be in a space that's where you're surrounded by a lot of other creative businesses and there's there's a you know a film studio there uh and so we we yeah we moved into the space and it's uh it's it's funny because our we have a very kind of scrappy culture generally, and it's it's definitely a more polished building than we've ever been in, and uh, so we're kind of still finding our way there. And you know, it's uh, there's a lot of learning curves. Like the Navy Yard, you have to have like passes to get into it and stuff. So when we have events, we have a great place to have events, but inevitably everyone ends up being an hour late because it's hard to get to. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay, well, so if I'm ever in the Navy Yard, I'll 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 try to sneak my way in to check out food. Oh, I would love to have you visit. Yeah, I would Uh, love to see it. That'd be great. Okay, Amanda, every podcast begins with what did you have for lunch, but it ends with what are you having for dinner tonight? So we are having chicken shawarma and with some sides. And I think actually it's making it's making use of some of the foods that we have left over from a dinner party. Okay. Um, and so it's like, I think we have like hummus, we've got labna, we've got some raita, some, and I think we're, it's going to be a, a sort of, a, and some pickles. Yeah. And so, and, and I'm not cooking it actually. Okay. So a few years ago, actually like probably it's been a while, but like I had got, like gotten so busy with work and I was getting home late and also was, and then I would have to like work after dinner. So uh-huh. I just like, I had no time to cook. And, um, and our kids also just like, you know, their, their school lives were getting busier. And so we had this idea that we were going to like, we were like, what if we could hire somebody who could like help, just help us with our lives, but who could also cook uh-huh. so to help us out, which, and so we, um, we hired this amazing person named Ava. Ava Chambers. Um, and you should follow her on Instagram because she cooks all sorts of amazing stuff. She's like a food stylist. She also like consults with restaurants. She's also worked in restaurants. Um, her her Instagram is Flavicot Flavicado or Flavicado. I don't know how okay. you're F-L-A-V-A-C or Flavicado. A-C-A-D-O. And uh Anyway, so she worked for us for a couple of years and then she like left to do some other things. Um, so, and then we had another great person and then anyway, she came back. Um, yeah, it's like Mary she, Poppins. I know. So she's like a part of our family and like, and like we're, cause she gets like, you know, food styling is one of those jobs where you like, you don't really know week to week what your jobs mm-hmm. are going to look like, like if you're going to have uh, a gig or not. I mean, sometimes they're planned in, like far in advance, but a lot of times it's kind of like the week before you find out. And it works really well for us because we're like super flexible, you know, mm-hmm. like if Ava can't cook, I obviously can, I can cook. Um, <laughs> I think and, you can. I'm pretty sure you but, can. Yeah. But it's also like, you know, it's been really, actually, I have found it like very inspiring to like mm-hmm. have someone kitchen who has it comes with like a different style and a different point of view and different ideas and like like Ava went on this whole like she went she just got really interested in Korean food and so Mm -hmm. like we ate all sorts of like Korean dishes that she was trying out or she'll get excited about a cookbook and like for instance um she's super excited about as as am I Sola El Whaley's cookbook that just came out Mm -hmm. and 
so she made her like mochi brownies, which are called perfect brownies. And so we're going to have those dessert. Um, so yeah, so she actually cooked, so she cooked, we had friends over for dinner last weekend. And, um, so she cooked that Persian rice that I, um, had as leftovers for, for, um, lunch. So, um, so I did, so I'm not cooking dinner and I feel, yes, <laughs> a little embarrassed to say, as no, no, that's wonderful. I'm not I cooking dinner, but, um, and I actually look forward to the day when I am not working such insane <laughs> hours, like I'm not cooking as much, but, um, uh, anyway, I actually, it's funny because we, um, I actually end up doing a lot of the cooking that I do in for for videos so so the cooking okay. i do ends up being for work i get that that's funny because yeah i mean i try to cook things for my videos or my tiktok that like we'll eat for dinner but sometimes yeah. the, you know the two things don't overlap but i'm curious like when you when ava comes to cook are there any stipulations like does the hesser friend household say like you know we don't do uh too much garlic or i don't know is there anything that you 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 ask her oh, to stay, yeah. stay away from no, well, so it's interesting because I just having worked with a lot of creative people at like at my company, but just also just throughout my career, I I think, well, I think there's two things. I think creative people can thrive actually when there are a lot of constraints, mm -hmm. like if there are like, you know, budget constraints or the, you know, space constraints or whatever it is. Like, I actually think it, 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 it kind of, um, brings a, to life a lot of, um, their creative energies, Yes, but I also feel like there's a, there's creative people also need freedom and like, and to be, have a space where they can just kind of run and like play around. And because we like pretty much to eat pretty much everything. Mm -hmm. And because we, this is sort of like a, maybe a weird kind of job, right. Cause it's sort of like, Oh, Hey, you know, like it's, it's not, it's not super structured. And then, you know, and it's like, it's a mix of like helping us with our lives. It's like, oh, hey, um, you know, like the kids forgot their such and such for school. Can you like go pick that up or whatever At, mixed with like cooking? I just, we felt like it's um, great to, great to just kind of like, hey, surprise us. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> um, and, and uh, cause I feel like, you know, that hopefully is a, makes it more fun to work, work, you know, to do this kind of cooking, but also, um, I, I really enjoy it because obviously I'm curious about food and curious about how people think about it. Um, but what we do do is that like, if there's something that like she makes that we like really love, we're like, Oh, Hey, we really love that. Is there any way to you know, kind of keep that in the mix? I will say there is maybe one stipulation, which is okay. that we, we love, we love desserts and we love cookies. Uh -huh. And so there's kind of like a, Hey, it's, can you just keep always have like kind of cookies or something sweet around the house? And, um, and, you know, we're perfectly happy with like a plain old, like Toll House chocolate chip cookie, but you know, Ava is like an amazing baker and she's one of those in, like intuitive bakers. Like I remember when she first worked for us, she would make cakes without a recipe, which I what? still like, that's not possible. It blows my no, mind. You, you can't I do don't that. I, she does and they're always amazing wow i mean pound cake i could probably do because it's a pound of each thing but otherwise i would be in trouble so um what i forgot to ask you because this is going to air on monday um the week of thanksgiving is what are you guys doing for thanksgiving mm. so we don't we don't really have a regular thanksgiving thing for many years like i didn't because not only is the lead up, you know, in food and media, the lead up to Thanksgiving is like super intense, Yes. but then we have, a, you know, having a commerce business, Black Friday through Cyber Monday is your busiest time of the year. Mm -hmm. So I, for a number of years, we kind of did very little for Thanksgiving. We would stay home and like kind of, um, you know, have a pretty uh, um, tame Thanksgiving dinner, but uh this year we're actually going to Pennsylvania to my brothers. And so I'm excited to kind of see how they, uh, how they celebrate Thanksgiving and, and like be able to like just pitch in and, you know, help out, you know, like roll up my sleeves, get in the, get in the kitchen and That's you nice. know, everything he did. so, yeah, I think it'll be great. Sometimes he fries a Turkey, but I'm not sure wow. he's going to be that this year. Yeah. Does your brother get intimidated to cook for you? Oh, no. No, no. My family, like everyone like likes to cook together. And okay. actually my brother, he's a really good baker. And um, yeah, no, no. Everyone like loves um, to cook together. And <laughs> my mom is like known for like, she'll, uh, if she has a cooking question, she'll ask my sister, not me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. 
that's like that's like that's like perfect mother like behavior like the sort of i know Can poke you where it hurts um, yeah that's yep. amazing uh, and wait, 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 where's your family is do you have, you have family in florida right that's right my mom's so actually the past couple thanksgivings we've gone to florida that's where i go Oh, you do? Yeah. Right. Your parents are there, right? Yeah, yeah. We're going this year to, you know, Boca, Boca Raton's where my family lives. But Craig's parents are from Bellingham, Washington, Washington State, all the way to the opposite end of the country. And they're coming this year to my parents, uh, oh my which gosh. is going to be a real culture clash. It's like Fargo meets the nanny. So it will be a very, uh, it'll be very interesting. But we're, I'm excited to go home. You, you, and, yeah. you cook or do you? Oh, my it? God. Now, this is where the therapy role is going to switch because I once cooked Thanksgiving for my family and it was a disaster just because my mom is a con- control freak and no, that she doesn't like she doesn't use her kitchen like her kitchen is like a museum. She doesn't cook at all. And so she hated that I was dirtying the stove and there were just all these fights. And so I never did it again. And we go to a their golf club buffet. That's very funny because my mom um, is similar. She's like, she's very particular and she uh-huh. likes cooking, but she doesn't really like a lot of people in her kitchen. So uh-huh. we did a couple Thanksgivings where we were like, we were cooking or and all together. And then last year when we went down to visit her, she, we went to her club. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so nice. Craig loves it. It's like there's ice sculptures, there's shrimp cocktail, they, there's carving yeah. stations. So it's like, you know what? It's actually kind of easier and more relaxing not to have to do any of that. So I kind of don't dread it at all. So yeah, yeah, Um, it's a a cultural experience. Yeah, totally. Well, Amanda, have a great Thanksgiving. And thank you so much. Yeah. And um, thanks for having me. Of course, maybe I'll see you around Brooklyn. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I hope so. All right. Have a good day. Bye. Yeah. All right. That's it for this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. Be sure to give me a follow on Instagram and no longer Twitter because I just deactivated it. Um, But you can find me now on Blue Sky and Threads, I'm Amateur Gourmet. And be sure to subscribe to my newsletter, amateurgourmet.substack.com. If you need some Thanksgiving recipes, I did a big newsletter this past Thursday that has lots of recipes for you. And I hope you have a terrific Thanksgiving, but don't forget to eat lunch. All right, I'll see you back here next week. Bye-bye.